If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the dodgy first episode of Dirty Sexy History, the podcast. I'm Jessica Kale, and you may remember me from Lost Pirate Kingdom on Netflix, where I talk over all your favorite sex scenes. <laughs> if you'd like to recreate some of that magic in the privacy of your own home, feel free to play this over other documentaries for inappropriate commentary on venereal disease for any and every occasion. You want to hear about syphilis while you're doing your laundry? You've come to the right place. Now, I'm not only a talking head, of course. I'm a historian primarily focused on sex and sexuality, and I edit the blog Dirty Sexy History. This podcast is meant to be a companion to that blog, so we'll be covering a lot of the same territory with the same goal in mind. So what is that? Well, I want to change the way that you think about the past. Why? It's not just because I like the sound of my own voice, although I do... It's because I want you to understand that almost nothing happening today is new. The times are entirely precedented. So when people present social issues as new problems of a morally bankrupt modern world, I want you to recognize it and call it out for the bullshit that it is. Look, it doesn't always come from a bad place. For a lot of people, history is this nostalgic fantasy land. Tell me if this sounds familiar. In the past, no one ever stepped out of line. Everyone knew their place and stayed in it. Women were always subservient to men. No one ever swore. Interracial marriage wasn't a thing. No one was gay. Trans people didn't exist. And everyone obeyed everything the church said without question. And, most importantly, no one ever, ever had sex for fun, inside or outside of marriage. So if you were going to have sex, you'd better be trying to get pregnant, and God help you if you enjoy it. <sighs> oh, guys, we have a lot of work to do. At best, misconceptions like these are fairly harmless daydreams that limit your understanding of the past by whitewashing everything complicated and interesting out of it. At worst, ideas like these are actively harmful because people use them to justify racism, homophobia, misogyny, and every other backward idea under the sun in pursuit of a more innocent past that never really existed. This podcast is going to take these ideas apart by focusing on those lesser-known parts of history that a lot of textbooks skim over. We're going to try to get past the idealized version of events to the dirty, sexy reality of human history, to the marginalized, the overlooked, and the censored for your own protection. Are you sitting comfortably? Let's get started. This week in inhumane short-sighted legislation, Texas has banned abortion after six weeks. Six weeks sounds like a long time, but I feel it's worth noting that people don't receive divine telegrams when they conceive anymore. Pregnancy tests don't work immediately, and most people don't know to try them until weeks after a missed period, which, by the way, might be late or missed for a number of reasons, not least because of the stress that comes with knowing that your state has no regard whatsoever for your bodily autonomy or personal choices. Outlawing abortion after only six weeks effectively outlaws it altogether. Now, 
some people are saying that this is taking us back to the dark ages, and that's just not fair. As somebody with a degree in, well, the dark ages, I'm here to tell you that this is actually much worse. Women in every culture and religion since the dawn of civilization have found ways to prevent or end unwanted pregnancies. Abortion didn't start with Roe versus Wade. It's always existed, and it always will. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Trigger warning, obviously. Today we're going to be talking about contraception and abortion in history. So if that's going to bother you, tune in next week for, well, something that's probably going to be traumatic in a different way. Now, look, we're not here to question anybody's religion, but we will touch on the subject from a historical perspective. So if looking at this sort of thing critically makes you feel like someone's attacking your faith, well, you know what? Grab a chair. This might be good for you. Also, a necessary disclaimer. We are going to be talking about several historical methods of family planning, but it's worth saying that just because women did this in the past does not mean that it's safe or even totally effective. Medicine has progressed quite a bit in recent years, so if you're looking for advice on modern contraception or abortion, please talk to your medical provider. Do not, under any circumstances, try any of this at home. I swear to God, you guys, do not mess around with this stuff, okay? All right, so let's jump straight into the shark-infested deep end of controversial subjects with a look at contraception and abortion in history. A lot of people have this idea that before the boomers came along and bravely led the sexual revolution powered by nothing other than orthotricycline acid in the doors, no one ever had sex for fun. The church said so. Your grandma wouldn't admit to it, so it must be true. If people in the past had sex, and people like you to believe that they never ever did, it was only within marriage and only for the purpose of procreation. When it happened, if it happened, they certainly never enjoyed it. Now, guys, it's not true. The whole idea that no one ever had sex for fun is nonsense. Why? Well, because of basic human biology, that's why. People did not suddenly figure out sex because Cosmopolitan, that great bastion of scientific research, reported in 1970 that sex sometimes happens, and it is awesome! Almost as long as people have been having sex, they've been looking for ways to limit their fertility. Birth control is as old as civilization, and possibly even older, in fact. Condoms have been found in cave paintings, predating the earliest civilizations by thousands of years. Hundreds of plants with abortifacient properties can be found growing in the wild all over the world. And over the centuries, people kept records of what they used and how to use it. So let's start in the ancient world. Okay, 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 okay. Pretty much everybody has heard that the ancient Egyptians used crocodile dung as a contraceptive, and that's actually true. Women would use it with honey and baking soda as a barrier method by using it to block the cervix like the world's least appealing diaphragm. There's no word on what they used for the raging UTIs that would follow, however. For those not keen on the whole crocodile thing, I mean, how would you even get it? Do you just follow a crocodile around with a bag? Well, there was always acacia. Women would soak pieces of cotton in dates, honey, and sticky acacia gum and insert it like a diaphragm. It actually worked to a point. Fermented acacia gum is rich in lactic acid, which is a natural spermicide. If acacia gum couldn't be found, they would use sour milk in much the same way. We know about this because the dead were often buried with contraceptives to prevent pregnancy in the afterlife. Egyptians preferred small families in life and death, as it happens, so they wanted to be prepared. 
And were they ever? In addition to contraceptives, tombs of several aristocrats have been found to contain other party favors, like condoms dyed bright colors and trimmed in animal fur, and even strap-ons made of mother of pearl. You know, just in case. In ancient China, as in the rest of the world, women would take herbal amenagogues, which are, of course, herbs or plants that stimulate menstruation when it's late for any reason, sometimes with mercury or lead. It did work to control their fertility, and if it didn't kill them, it would make them violently ill. In China and India, men were encouraged to abstain or, failing that, just avoid ejaculating as much as possible. Not come somewhere else. Just not come at all. The idea was that ejaculating resulted in the loss of too much yang energy or the essence of masculinity. Sex with women was still beneficial because they would absorb their partner's yin energy, which is a good thing, without losing too much of what made them men. Those who could not keep themselves from coming through sheer force of will or thinking about baseball or whatever were encouraged to redirect their ejaculate by pressing hard on the urethra under their balls. The idea, and this is true, was to reroute the cum by sending it directly up their spine and into their brain. As you know, men only have one thing on their minds, and as it happens, it's years and years of painstakingly suppressed ejaculate. But why? As fun as that sounds, it didn't actually work. If you do this, the ejaculate just ends up in your bladder, but it's easier to deal with by just pissing it out than later on with a cocktail of mercury and Queen Anne's lace. On that delightful note, let's take it back to ancient Greece. You may be familiar with the story of Persephone, the goddess of spring, and the daughter of Demeter, the goddess of agriculture. She was abducted by Hades, the god of the underworld, and there are a lot of different interpretations of the story, but arguments over whether she was raped or seduced distract from an important piece of subtext. The pomegranate seeds. Medical historians have since pointed out that the seeds Persephone ate in the underworld weren't just symbolic. They were one of the first oral contraceptives. She ate six of them, one for every month she would stay with Hades, refusing to become pregnant. Pomegranates were revered in many cultures, and some people believe that, given the landscape, the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden wasn't an apple at all, but it was actually a pomegranate, representing carnal knowledge and a way in which to control all that. See, pomegranate seeds contain high levels of estrone, which is a compound very similar to estrogen. Recent studies have shown that it does limit fertility to a point, with the highest concentration of estrone being found in the seed pulp. Persephone's connection to contraception does not end with pomegranates, however. In ancient Greece, women would celebrate the coming of spring and the reunion of Persephone and Demeter with female-only festivals where they would drink pomegranate, pennyroyal, and pine in secret rituals to honor the goddesses. These things have all been found to have contraceptive properties, and by participating in these rituals, women passed on Demeter's family planning secrets from generation to generation. But in North Africa, there was Silphium. Silphium was a type of giant fennel that grew in Serenica, which was present-day Libya, between the 6th century BCE and the 1st century CE. It was so central to the economy of Cyrene that most of the coins had images of the plant or its heart-shaped seeds. It was delicious, smelled wonderful, and it could treat everything from sore throats and indigestion to snake bites and epilepsy. It was its other uses, however, that made it famous and caused its eventual extinction. 
Silphium was known throughout the Mediterranean as a highly effective contraceptive and abortifacient. It was actually worth its weight in silver, and it was believed to be a gift of Apollo. The Egyptians and the Knossos Minoans even had a special glyph for it. Women were commonly advised to mix the juice from a small amount of silphium with water to regulate their menstrual cycles, a euphemism that would stick with us right up until the 20th century. Silphium water was also effective when applied to wool and used as a pessary. Unfortunately, silphium was a very temperamental plant and could only really grow on one narrow coastal area about 100 miles long. That doesn't sound like much when you consider that this plant provided contraception to much of the ancient Mediterranean. It was so good that it was farmed to extinction within 600 years. So what do you do if your birth control is farmed to extinction? Well, you find another one. Certain fruits and other plants have been used in traditional medicine in Africa, Asia, and the Americas for centuries. Modern science is finally catching up to how effective some of these things are. For example, in India, it was common for women to eat papayas to prevent pregnancy. So common, in fact, that people still do it. And in sufficient quantities, it works. A study in the early 90s found that an enzyme in papaya interacts with the hormone progesterone and can actually work to prevent pregnancy. Forget your blueberries and avocado, papaya is the real superfruit. Other plants and barrier methods continued to be used and studied throughout the Middle Ages. In the 9th century, Persian physician Muhammad bin Zachariah al-Razi wrote about the effectiveness of just pulling out, as well as the use of other sticky pessaries like elephant dung and pitch. Honey was also used, as it had been in Egypt, Mesopotamia, and India. The IUD even has its roots in 9th century Persia. During this time, physicians experimented with paper probes tied with string, soaked in ginger, and inserted into the cervix. If sticking ginger into sensitive places sounds familiar to you, you might be thinking about figging, which is a BDSM thing that may have originated as a method of torture in the ancient world. With figging, you carve a piece of ginger root into a butt plug, and you thought this wasn't an arts and crafts podcast. But when you use it, the ginger burns like absolute hell, but you know, some people are into that. We're not here to kink shame. But the crazy thing is, they were onto something with that ginger. Ginger also has mild contraceptive properties, particularly when drunk in massive quantities in tea. But just one piece of advice, it's not going to work as well if it's in your butt. <sighs> Having said that, other methods of the time were not as invasive or, um, burny. <laughs> In the 13th century, Peter of Spain published Thesaurus Paparum, or Treasure of the Poor, a book containing extensive instructions for contraception to be used before or after sex. Filth! Absolute filth! The shame! So what happened to Peter? Well, Peter was elected Pope John the 21st in 1276. See, the church was not always against contraception. In fact, in many Christian countries, it was actually the clergy that preserved contraceptive knowledge and distributed menstrual regulators to women as needed. So how does that work? Well, we'll be going into that in just a second. But first, we're going to hand it over to Dr. John for our new segment, Same Shit, Different Year. This week, the Indian government has piled pressure on social media companies to clamp down on the use of the term Indian variant to describe the B1617 strain of COVID. 
Previously, Beijing had complained about then-US President Trump's insistence upon referring to the coronavirus as the China virus. It hasn't escaped notice that this has precedent. After the First World War, the Spanish government grew increasingly frustrated by the British and American insistence on referring to the influenza outbreak as the Spanish flu, a name foisted on it by the British press when the Spanish authorities had had the courtesy to warn their British counterparts what was coming. Spain, having remained neutral during the war, was not subject to the levels of propaganda still at work in most European countries, and so appeared to have suffered a more severe outbreak. They would have been in a better position to complain about this if they hadn't already dubbed it the soldier of Naples themselves. The Germans blamed the Russians, the Russians the Chinese, and the Americans blamed the Germans. You get the picture. Speaking of pictures, artists in various countries came to depict the flu as a Spanish lady, spreading disease like a lady of the night. Speaking of sexually transmitted diseases, as we want to do on Dirty Sexy History just occasionally, from time to time, they've always been something to blame on that one neighbour you don't much like the look of. Take syphilis. The French blamed the Neapolitans for it, the Italians, in their turn, blamed the French back, and in this they were unsurprisingly joined by the British and the Germans. The Germans were responsible for syphilis in the eyes of the Poles, who were themselves its perpetrator, according to the Russians. Spain got the blame, again, from neighbours in Portugal and in North Africa, and Christians, Muslims, and Hindus blamed each other for syphilis the length of the Silk Road, there's still an academic war being waged as the continents of America and Europe try to foist the origin of the disease on each other. A pox on all your houses. This nationalist blame game would be an almost amusing illustration of the natural human tendency towards deflecting fault for elevator flatulence were it not for the fact that the misinformation has had some serious repercussions from delays in sharing vital information on on the virus, to illogical violence against people suspected of being from the virus's country of origin, to some countries stockpiling vaccines they can't convince their populations to take, while yet other countries don't even have enough vaccine to meet demand. It's almost as if there were things people needed their citizens distracted from. You have to go all the way back to the 6th century to find an elegant solution to the issue of what to name your virus. Between 541 and 750 CE, it has been estimated that as many as 50 million people, or half of the global population of the time, died during a pandemic often held responsible for the decline of the Eastern Roman Empire. Now those numbers and their impact are disputed but it's safe to say that nobody wanted their country's name attached to it. At this point in history, the buck stopped at the top, and this pandemic has gone down in history as the Plague of Justinian. It was named after the Emperor. Perhaps, therefore, the lack of knowledge about the virus which stems from China's obstruction of the World Health Organization should be termed the Z-Gap, 
the B1617 strain incubated at BJP rallies around India could become the Modi mumps. Whatever it is that Boris Johnson caught by insisting on shaking everyone's hand during the pandemic would be the Bojo Lurgi, and the virus that the Donald told you to treat with disinfectant, but then didn't treat with that when he got it, should be named Trump Cooties. Although that would be confusing since, at around the time of the Spanish flu, cooties referred specifically to body lice. Oh well. So on a related note, in sports news, vaccine hesitancy in Japan is contributing to calls for the Tokyo Olympics to be cancelled. From the smallpox to polio to COVID, there have always been those who are not so keen on getting stuck in the arm. The Japanese reluctance to take vaccines and national concern about the side effects of vaccines has long been amongst the highest in the whole world. A majority of Japanese people simply want the Olympics cancelled. Now look, I care very little about who the best badminton player in the world is. I can see why we perhaps might want to know who the fastest person in the world is but not really why anyone other than stopwatch official needs to be there to watch it. Also, why did they make breakdancing an official Olympic sport and then not feature it until 2024, unless they are seriously whack? Nevertheless, I do think the game should go ahead. Hear me out. The 1940 Tokyo Olympics were also cancelled also against a backdrop of a rising tide of fascism around the world. So perhaps we should remember that the original purpose of these games was to honour Zeus and not stiff him on the sacrifices. Because this hasn't gone so well in the past. In fact, one of the early Christian emperors of Rome, Theodosius I, banned the pagan games in 394. He was dead within the year and the empire fell within a century. Now, the ancient games ceremonies included sacrificing a hundred cattle to the father of the gods halfway through the games. I bet everyone who's been saying it's inappropriate for McDonald's to sponsor athletic events is feeling pretty silly right about now. The modern Olympic Committee are understandably concerned about repercussions from sponsors if the games do not go ahead. It's hard to imagine that their predecessors back in the reign of Augustus even considered cancellation. The sponsor of the 12 BCE games? King Herod. Yeah, the one from the Bible. Yeah, with the babies. <laughs> yeah, him. So, until next week, keep the torch burning. This has been Same Shit, Different Year. So where were we? Oh yeah, the actual Dark Ages. Look, before we get to the good stuff, we have to clear something up. Yes, the church was a big deal in medieval Europe, but people didn't obey everything they said without question. And in any case, the church was actually much cooler about birth control than you might suspect. For one thing, sex work was as common as ever. The church viewed it as a necessary evil and actually regulated and profited off of it in many places. Outside of the church, a lot of medieval physicians saw sex as important to overall health, just like food, sleep, and exercise. 
Sex was supposed to be the best way to get rid of toxic humors, so abstinence was thought to lead to weakness, illness, madness, and even death. You had to have sex, or you would go crazy. So, how did they handle contraception? Better than you might expect. Menstrual regulators were common and widely accepted. Recipes were recorded in medical texts, shared between women, and saved in household handbooks. They were even distributed by certain clergy members. They could be made at home with a few ingredients most women would recognize and be able to find without too much trouble. In the ancient world, and even the early Christian church, abortion was not considered to be particularly immoral. See, the medieval church followed the guidelines of the actual Bible in believing that life began at birth, Genesis 2-7, as opposed to conception, and no one was really sure when conception happened. St. Thomas Aquinas argued that souls are created by God, not by man, so that the soul did not enter the body until the infant drew its first breath. Abortion, or menstrual regulation, was not explicitly mentioned in the Bible except to recommend it in the case of suspected unfaithful wives, which is Numbers 5.11-31 to 31, in case you're curious. And whether or not it was immoral in the Middle Ages depended on who you asked. Burchard of Worms Decretum, a penitential for the clergy to use to determine penance for various sins, tackled the issue of abortion in a section called Concerning Women's Vices. Burchard definitely opposed abortion, but the penance he recommended varied. To Burchard, the severity of the sin was not dependent on the act itself, but the status of the woman and the circumstances of conception. The worst crime was that resulting from adultery. For this, he orders seven years of abstinence and a lifetime of tears and humility. Abortion stemming from fornication was also bad, unless the woman was poor or a sex worker, which was statistically likely. If the woman was poor and acted because she would not be able to feed the child, it was considered understandable, and no penance was prescribed. Knowledge of herbal abortifacients not only survived the Middle Ages, but it became more accessible as time went on. As books became more affordable to the general populace, what had mainly been shared between women and doctors became available to anyone who could read. While family planning was still something you took care of in private, coded recipes appeared in popular cookbooks. Hannah Woolley was a kind of 17th century Martha Stewart, writing books on household management to support herself after her husband passed away in 1661. As a servant to a lady during her younger years, Woolley had picked up a number of recipes and handy housekeeping tips. She became a household name after self-funding the publication of her first book in 1661, The Lady's Directory, followed by The Cook's Guide shortly thereafter. Her books were so popular that they sold out of multiple printings. Between the recipes for perfume and preserves, however, there was advice of a more sensitive nature. The Accomplished Lady's Delight, published in 12 editions between 1675 and 1720, contained a recipe to bring down the flowers. By the 17th century, bringing down the flowers was a common euphemism for abortion or stimulating menstruation that was unexpectedly late. That this recipe was included in the early modern version of The Joy of Cooking gives us some idea of how abortion was viewed in practice. It was a women's issue, best left to women. But Hannah Woolley didn't make up this recipe herself. Recipes to draw down the flowers or procure the months were included in lots of common cookbooks, and the ingredients for them could be found growing outdoors or purchased at the market. 
A few key ingredients wouldn't be out of place in a liquor cabinet, however. In 18th century France, ladies used sponges soaked in brandy. Artemisia and juniper were both known to inhibit fertility. Wormwood, a type of artemisia, became the key ingredient in absinthe, and juniper, of course, gave us gin. Juniper had been used as a contraceptive since ancient Rome, when Pliny the Elder said the best way to use it was to crush up the berries and rub them all over your dick. It sounds a bit Monty Python, but his heart was in the right place. Abortion first became a criminal offense in Britain in 1803 under Lord Ellenborough's Act. The act officially changed when life was thought to begin. It was no longer at quickening, which is when the fetus starts to move between three to five months into a pregnancy, but now they thought it was at conception. This was well before the church, which did not officially rule that life began at conception until 1869. Early stage abortion went from common practice to serious felony overnight. Abortion became a capital offense, so doctors who had previously been sympathetic distanced themselves for their own protection. Once again, women were on their own. But once again, they figured it out. As print media became more accessible, advertisements for various mysterious-sounding women's remedies began to appear in newspapers. While once women might have had to source their own ingredients to bring down the flowers, the same concoctions were now available in pill form through the mail. One major brand was Widow Welch's Pills. It would have contained a herbal abortifacient like Pennyroyal, not just a tea anymore, and it was sold as a cure for female obstruction into the 20th century. Similar to Widow Welch's were French periodical pills, Ferrer's Catholic pills, and Madame Drunette's Lunar pills, which were also advertised in newspapers and women's magazines as menstrual regulators or even laxatives for nonspecific female trouble. In 1868, a medical journal writer replied to a number of ads offering to help women who were temporarily indisposed and found out that more than half of them were actually advertising abortion services. Beecham's pills were marketed as a laxative from 1842, and the company spent nearly a hundred thousand pounds on advertising by 1880, selling more than six million boxes annually. Over-the-counter pills with the same active ingredients were available in Britain, Australia, Europe, and North America. While abortion laws remained restrictive in Britain throughout the 19th century, abortion was not punished as severely in the U.S. If you were caught, ending a pregnancy within the first few months was at most a misdemeanor. Over-the-counter menstrual regulators like Widow Welch's did very well in the States, and during the 1860s, abortion services were also available in bigger cities, including New York, New Orleans, Cincinnati, Louisville, Chicago, Cleveland, and Indianapolis. Throughout the mid-19th century, it is estimated that a staggering 25% of all pregnancies in the United States ended in abortion. Birth control was legal in the U.S. throughout the 19th century, but the Comstock Act of 1873 made it much harder to get. This act prevented the circulation of birth control or even information about contraceptives through the U.S. mail. Just like that, you couldn't mail porn, sex toys, or even sexy letters. That's right. It's not that people weren't writing them. They just weren't allowed to mail them anymore. It was all considered obscene material and mailing it could get you a sentence of up to five years of hard labor. As ever, making something illegal didn't eradicate it, however. 
it just drove it underground, which is exactly what will happen if more states follow the example of Texas in banning or restricting access to safe abortion. Because that's what this is. It's taking away the safe option, not eliminating abortion altogether. As we've learned today, people will always find ways to prevent or end unwanted or unviable pregnancies, even if that means risking their own lives to do it. And now, with the advances of modern medicine, they shouldn't have to. For those of you still with us, thank you for tuning in. Please review, subscribe, and tell all your friends about that thing with the ginger. As always, you can find us and our post archive at DirtySexyHistory.com or follow us on Instagram or Twitter at DirtySexyHistory. Our sources today include, but are not limited to, Catherine Arnold, The Sexual History of London, P.F. Braithwaite, A Case of Poisoning by Penaroyal, Recovery, James Brundage, Sex and Canon Law, Burchard of Worms, Decretum, E.J. Burford, Bauds and Lodgings, A History of the London Bankside Brothels, Joan Cadden, Western Medicine and Natural Philosophy, Geoffrey Chamberlain, British Maternal Mortality in the 19th and Early 20th Centuries, Francis and Joseph Guise, Marriage and Family in the Middle Ages, James Hobson, Dark Days of Georgian Britain, Sarah E. Nelson, Persephone's Seeds, Abortifacients and Contraceptives in Ancient Greek Medicine and Their Recent Scientific Appraisal, Pierre Payer, Confession and the Study of Sex in the Middle Ages, Planned Parenthood, John Riddle, Contraception and Early Abortion in the Middle Ages, John Riddle, Eve's Herbs, A History of Contraception and Abortion in the West, Victoria Sweet, Hildegard of Bingen and the Greening of Medieval Medicine, Ray Tannehill, Sex and History, Hannah Woolley, The Accomplished Lady's Delight. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast written, produced, and directed by Jessica Kale and John Jenkins. See you next time.